Grace, the Amy Santiago of Royal Bloggers. And I'm Jessica, the Dorothy's Boring app of Royal Bloggers. And we'd like to welcome you to On Air, the podcast where two cynical Brits discuss the latest royal news and the truth behind the story. Hello everyone and welcome to the On Air podcast. We are very happy to have you with us. Um... So we hope you enjoyed our episode last week, which was all about our, uh, it was our anniversary episode. So it was our award ceremony, um, awarding some of the standout moments of the year. Um, And actually, I have successfully bullied Grace into allowing me to sort of do a a tiny little extra part to that last episode. Because um, we ended our last episode with our favourite moments. That was like the big category. Well, I, I picked the Jordanian royal wedding and Grace picked um, Kate at the coronation, where she blacked out for 10 minutes. Uh, <laughs> and then the volunteer day that they did around the coronation, the Wales family. And I think both of us were like, it wasn't the best year in terms of standout moments. So neither of us were like, whoa, this is the greatest moment ever. I'm so excited about my choice. And... About three days after we recorded the episode, about a day before it went live, so it was already and scheduled and everything, I went searching on Instagram for something else I was doing, and I found a video, and I realised, oh no, this was my favourite moment. And you might think, well, how can it be your favourite moment if you forgot it? But the way that I do my notes for the um, the award ceremony thing is I, I try to link it to things we've talked about in the podcast. So I just went back and looked through everything we talked about over the last year and put things in categories. And I was like, yeah, that Georgianian royal wedding, that's fine. Um, And we didn't talk about my actual favourite moment. And so um, I was very furious with myself. So I was like, well, of course, this is the best moment. How did I forget this happened? I went and told Grace immediately about and how furious I was at myself for forgetting it. And so she's allowed me to use this opportunity to officially correct the record and say that the Georgianian royal wedding was like my favourite event. I suppose. Um, yeah, I'll say that. Yeah. Um, and my second favourite thing, but my actual favourite thing was when Kate, Princess of Wales, played the piano at Eurovision for the opening of Eurovision. Yeah, I think I completely forgot it happened. Um, not that I just forgot it happened. Like, I was aware, but I hadn't like registered that that was this yeah. year. And I had, in fact, forgotten like, the details of it until yeah. you mentioned it again. And I was like, Oh, there's the bo- there's the plot twist where I chose the Jordanian <laughs> yeah. for a wedding. That's my plot twist of the year. Uh, yes. Yeah. So, <laughs> I was like, okay. I, I see why we need to talk about this one again. We did both forget a very important moment in the year. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so I think it, it would be it would be your plot twist choice and my favourite moment choice. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um. So for a brief a brief recap, last year. Uh, 2022 Ukraine won Eurovision with Stefania by the Kalish Orchestra or Kalush Orchestra. Um, lots of people said it was a sympathy vote because obviously Ukraine had just been invaded by Russia. Those people are wrong. It was a banger. It was great. I love that <laughs> wee Ukrainian flute that they play. Um, it was my favourite song and I loved it. So I was really pleased that it won. But obviously because of the invasion, they couldn't host for various reasons. It wasn't seen as being viable. And so the UK as the runners up and also significant funding contributors to um Eurovision Song Contest we were given the opportunity to host it instead and it was kind of like a joint Ukraine UK event so it was hosted in our country but had some Ukrainian celebrities involved 
It also was like had moments where it would pay tribute to Ukrainian culture and moments to the UK. So it's a bit of both. And I was very excited because I am a massive, massive Eurovision fan. Um, and I'd been asked in the past if I ever thought that the if it was hosted in the UK, did I think that the British royals would participate? Because, you know, we've had the Norwegian royals who did, who were in a video clip when it was in Norway. We the, the Dutch royals went to one of the semifinals when it was in the Netherlands. And I my thought had always been, well, no, because it's a bit in the UK. It's viewed as being like a bit tacky. And that's why I love it. But I didn't think, you know, that that would ever, it's ever something that would happen. Um, and even like going into this year's ceremony, when they set, when Graham Norton, who is the um, commentator who um, does like the voiceover commentary for uh, Eurovision in the UK, even when he was like, oh, there's going to be a very special guest at the beginning of this year's con- uh, con- uh, contest. I was like, oh, it'll be like Adele or Paul McCartney or someone like that. Ed Sheeran. Oh yeah, Ed Sheeran. Yeah, it'll be, it'll be somebody like that who, like, they always say. I remember when they when it was um, Ascot and they said that there was going to be a really special guest. And it was Anton Deck. <laughs> We're never going to get over that. We no, invented that really special guest was letting everyone down. Yeah, so strange. Um, so yeah, so my I never thought you know, that it was even possible that we would have royals participating in the actual Eurovision Song Contest. I suppose, to be fair, in years gone by, when people were asking me this, I hadn't factored in the fact that we would be hosting it on behalf of another country that had been invaded, that we were trying to position ourselves as being like the ultimate champion of Ukraine at the time. That was what our government and so on were trying to do. And so um, I had, you know, that hadn't been a factor in my thinking when people asked me four years ago (laughs) if I thought the Brits would ever do Eurovision. But basically going into it, I thought, well, you know, there's absolutely no possibility that the British royals are going to really participate in this. So here it started off. There was the opening of the con- um, contest was a VT, a video clip where Kalush Orchestra started the song Stephania in the underground in Ukraine. And then it kind of traveled between there and the UK. And so they would be performing it in the UK, um, in the Ukraine, and then it would come over to the UK and we'd have like Andrew Lloyd Webber playing the piano along to it or Joss Stone singing to it. Perform. You know, it was those sorts of things where it was like bouncing between the two countries and they were doing their performance and we were doing a bit of our performance. And then it showed the outside of Windsor Castle. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I remember thinking to myself, that's Windsor Castle. And there was, uh, there was a little part of my brain that thought, maybe it's Kate. Um, and but the, but the big part of my brain was going, oh, it's probably like Jamie Cullum, who's a famous British singer and pianist. Um, it's probably him in Windsor Castle. They've given him the opportunity to go to Windsor, and he's that's what he's doing here. He's play, he's playing the piano at Windsor, and then it went inside Windsor Castle, and it was Kate sitting at a piano in a Ukrainian blue g- gown, playing a piano arrangement to go along with the song Stephania. Um, and I think from memory, I shouted out loud by myself uh, in my room and then I cried. <laughs> so, yeah. I love it. Yeah. I love it. That's amazing. Um, so I, I actually, I watched it back for this recording um, just to make sure that I actually wasn't just remembering it incorrectly and it wasn't that impressive. And it's funny, you know, on YouTube, I don't know, how well, I was going to say, I don't know how often you go on YouTube. Everyone goes on YouTube, Jessica. It's 2023. Um, I've heard of this YouTube. <laughs> <thing>. <laughs> um, 
but it, you know on youtube how you can it, it, when you're scrolling along it it shows you the bit that's most replayed in the video yeah. and obviously the most replayed bit of the whole video clip is when it goes to windsor castle and kate starts playing the piano um so i'm not alone in this um and to me and it didn't make me cry but it did make me tear up watching it again now months on from when it happened i i don't cry when i see something sad on the tv um or anything like that but what makes me cry is when i see something that makes me feel like proud yeah that makes sense when like people are being nice to each other (laughs) um (laughs) or if somebody's really talented and they're getting to do the thing that they love and everybody's really happy about it so it was a real shock to me that was part of the reason why it was my favorite moment it was a real shock but then the other reason was just like whether people are royalists or not Kate is one day going to be married to the head of state for our country for her to participate as I say it was not only a shock but I thought it was such a lovely like moment of sort of support and positivity and uh kind of togetherness and um it just like it was a it was just a really lovely moment and so that's that's kind of why it made me cry because I was like I've been following this person for such a long time I never thought that they would do this and this horrible thing has happened but look at how people from every part of society people who I never ever would have normally thought would participate in Eurovision are coming together to kind of show their support in their own way and to show their own creativity and I don't know it just I, I that's the kind of thing that makes me feel emotional is like just when people are when you see the best of people in the worst circumstances, if that makes sense, like what happened in Ukraine was horrible, but what we were seeing was people all over the world supporting them. And Kate doing that was kind of like the pinnacle because there is no person who I've thought was less likely to participate than her. (laughs) No, it does make a lot of sense. I think we had such a huge build up to Eurovision this year because we were hosting it in the UK. Like it was everywhere. And it was coming just um, after the coronation as well. And like literally like the week after. So we had um, the coronation uh, on a, was it Saturday? And then so the coronation concert. And then on Monday, the Eurovision semi-final started. <laughs> and it was just like a whole week of madness. And as I, the King and Queen, Charles and Camilla went to Eurovision before it started as some kind of like, hi, nice to meet you, people. Um, which was very nice. And but in my head got very linked in with their coronation celebrations. Yeah. I was like, they're only doing this because it's the coronation and they're like doing everything. Um but yeah, I remember watching your origin and then being trying to guess who the big star is gonna be. And then they zoomed in on Windsor Castle and I was like, that's that's Windsor Castle, that's Windsor Castle, that's Windsor Castle. And mum's like, Grace, shut up. stop going on about things um and then i saw a brunette and blue and i was like that's kate um and then i probably i fairly sure i went on instagram or youtube and just rewatched that clip multiple times (laughs) for the next few minutes yeah so after Um, they finish that they then go into like the studio and they do like some introduction things and i yeah i was doing the same thing i was like right well it's on youtube already so i'm just gonna watch it six times (laughs) to make sure that it really (laughs) happened rewatch going okay. um yeah it was it it felt like it made a lot of sense that it was Kate because she's done a lot of work with Ukraine um like 
in not in terms of like the Ukrainian military, but in terms of like the Ukrainian people and Ukrainian culture. Um, and obviously she can play the piano very well. So that was nice. Um, and it kind of, it reminded me of back during COVID, the BBC did this like big night in thing. And Stephen Fry sort of opened it with loads of skits and then mm. on the phone to like Charles and William and then the Wells family came out of the Cambridges as they were then and waved um, just at the eight o'clock clap and everyone went out and clapped. And I was like outside because I was clapping, but I was just like, but Kate's on the TV, mum. <laughs> so I can't do both. <laughs> Sticking my head in and out. And it reminded me of that moment where like, as soon as it happened, I was like, of course, that doesn't in fact make perfect sense. But if you'd asked me before, I would have been categorically, that's not going to happen. So... <laughs> Charles and Camilla's thing, I thought was like, okay, it's at, not the actual Eurovision Song Contest, it's the before. And it's also like, they're there to pay to sort of thank people who have made the concert happen. Like, it's not just about sort of sitting there and watching, you know, the cheesy music it was about thanking people for something that had taken a considerable amount of effort so I thought that would be kind of like it that would be the royal representation was over before the actual event and we wouldn't have any royal representation during the actual event so it was such a shock it reminded me of like the Olympics um <laughs> because in 2012 the UK hosted the Olympics and um beforehand everyone had been very British about it and been like it's so expensive it's so useless. Why are we doing this? It's terrible. And the opening ceremony happened and it was incredible. It just sort of brought everybody together for a moment. And I think that's what it kind of reminded me of, of like, you know, it's been a difficult year for lots of different reasons, difficult few years for, and, you know, um, we were hosting this event and we knew that we were hosting it as kind of like the backup choice. And so there was a lot of people like, oh, well, we should have been hosting it anyway, because we should have won. And then other people being like, oh, I can't believe that the UK is hosting it. It's so you know, lame. The only way we can get to host it is if we're the runners up. We didn't even win. You know, people, there was a lot of negativity around it. And then when it actually started, you kind of had, it felt like Kate was coming in and being like, guys, this is no, shush. Come on. We're all together now. Let's be together. And that, and it ended up being a really great event. So Firefest actually somewhat more relevant uh, topic of the week um we are uh i won't actually say focusing on the recent state visit to the uk from south korea but we're not we're focusing on oh, one very small aspect of said state visit um so on tuesday the 21st of november I was sick in bed, so I missed all of this happening. But um, there was a st at the start of the uh, state visit from South Korea, the president and first lady. Do they call them first lady in South? In they South do. Korea? She does. Apparently, she doesn't like being called first lady, but she is. So okay, president and first lady of South Korea came to the UK, and they were greeted by the prince, princess of Wales. They looked at some horses. They went to Buckingham Palace, had lunch, went and visited the MPs, did some things on other days. But obviously the highlight of any state uh, visit is the state banquet. And the particular highlight of this state banquet was a incredibly intriguing and surprise choice of tiaras for a selection of the royal women present. So we thought, obviously what we need to do is go into a tiara discussion, which we haven't done for ages. Yeah, for all, no. um, and talk about the tiaras they wore and whether we thought they were appropriate and fancy or rubbish 
That's the choices. Appropriate, fancy, rubbish. Um, yeah, no, I, I'd actually forgotten that we were even having a state visit from South Korea, to be honest. Uh, and, I, you know, we could theoretically talk about the state visit as a whole, but I think that when you're having a state visit where one party is not a monarchy, they go off and do things on their own without the monarchy, without any members of the monarchy being there with them. So, like, 75% of the state visit really wouldn't have been anything. We would have just been talking about the president of South Korea, which has really nothing to do with this podcast whatsoever. Um, I don't know much about him. So that, you know, we would have only been talking about the royal related stuff anyway. And I think other than King Charles making a couple of references to K-pop, which he quite obviously did not understand, um, there wasn't much else to talk about beyond the tiaras. The first child we're going to talk about is the Duchess of Gloucester, who is married to the Duke of Gloucester, unsurprisingly, who was the Queen's cousin, the late Queen, not Camilla. Um, and she wore um, one of her tiaras, but a tiara that we have not seen since the 80s, I think, for quite a few years. Quite a few, like 40 years. Um, and it is her diamond and emerald band- bandeau? Yeah, I was like, band- <laughs> my writing going, is that right? <laughs> her diamond and emerald bandeau tiara, um, which was originally a wedding gift to her mother-in-law, Princess Alice, who would have been the Duchess of Gloucester then. <laughs> yes, so, I mean, uh, to be honest, when we were talking about our notes for this episode, and we were, we, uh, w- w- there are more surprising ones to come. And so I had been focusing on those. I knew we were going to talk about those. And then Grace said, oh, and the, you know, Duchess of Gloucester. And I was like, what did the Duchess of Gloucester wear? Or is it surprising? <laughs> I don't know. So I had to go and look it up. Thankfully, I have a friend who is an expert in tiaras. Her name is, well, her, her blog name is Tiara Mania. She's on Tumblr and she also has a uh, sort of website. Um, I would highly recommend you go and check her out because most of what I know about tiaras comes from her. Um, All of my tiara knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And so she was the one who said, okay, no, this tiara hasn't been worn in several decades. Um, And so I was like, oh, gosh, okay, yeah, that is actually a surprise. If it hadn't been for her or Grace, I wouldn't have had any idea that this tiara was special in any way whatsoever. I don't know why she brought it back now, because nothing's actually changed for the Duchess of Gloucester in the way that it has (laughs) for some of the other people we talk about. So there was no particular reason that she had to bring a tiara that she hasn't worn for 40 years I mean, the fact that there were oh, so many new tiaras was a bit of a shock. Mm. Not new, but you know, surprising tiaras was a shock anyway, because I was fully on the train that everyone was going to repeat their most commonly yeah. worn tiaras. That's normally what they um, do. Yeah, and I am honestly, apart from saying Kate is not going to the state open apartment, I am like zero for 50 in my predictions this year, because I just am way off base all the time. Um, but yeah, I I guess you would just maybe they have a group chat and they were like, yeah, we're gonna wear some cool tiaras, and she's like, I am not being outdone. Get me that one. Go for the vault. Come on, Richard, let's go. Well, I mean, I can understand why she hasn't worn it for a long time because actually the Gloucester family have access to a huge amount of tiaras. So the Duchess of Gloucester is the only one from that family who regularly attends events where she would need to wear a tiara, and yet the Gloucester branch of the family have access to between six and eight tiaras of their own, which means that she basically has access to at least six. There's a couple where I'm not really sure where they are now, but at least six, potentially eight tiaras. Um, So if she doesn't like one of them, which is possible, I can understand why she wouldn't have worn it for a very long time. It doesn't explain why she's now worn it here. Um, (laughs) That's still, I think that's just going to be an eternal mystery. 
but I can understand why maybe she wouldn't have worn it if she didn't like it. Like if she didn't, because I personally don't think it's the best Gloucester tiara. No, it's not. And I think she, I mean, she was the only person who wore two tiaras during the state visit because she wore one the next day. And the other one she wore was when she's worn a lot more often, but it did. I can see why she wears the other one more often. I don't remember what it is because it suited her more. Yeah. No offense. This one's great, but it was, it's a bit, I don't know, small. Yes, it looks small in a weird way. A lot of t- I don't know the details of like like where this tiara was, how this tiara was made, or but a lot of tiaras kind of use, you know, a brooch or um, a bracelet, or they break up another tiara, and that's how they're made. It's not like it's often it's often not like okay, get loads of new diamonds and make something completely from scratch. I don't know if that's what happened here, but to me, it does look like somebody took a bracelet. Uh, like a chunky bracelet but a bracelet and then whacked a frame on it and then put it on someone's head and they were like this is a tiara now um it doesn't really look like it was made to be a tiara no yeah and i think the duchess of Gloucester is obviously a um aging woman she's older than you know anyone else we can talk about um and she's got very gray hair so a her the smaller kind of like a bandeau tiara really kind of blended in and the pictures were kind of a lot of the pictures we have of her in the tiara in the car yeah so they're always like blue toned mm-hmm. so it doesn't help um and I think it yeah it just didn't stand out particularly on her yeah there's also like there's these little emeralds on it which can be changed out for diamonds but they're so, t- uh, this sounds so ridiculous because, I mean, nobody's giving me emeralds of any size whatsoever. <laughs> so it's for me to be like, oh, I don't really like this particular emerald. Um, but they are, t- they, they're too small to really make much of a difference to me. Yeah, I think if you're going to have like a coloured stone tiara, they need to be front and centre coloured stones, not like delicately hidden away. Um, otherwise, just my diamonds. <laughs> diamonds are shiny. It's fine. There either needs to be big 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 ones or like lots of them throughout but it's just like kind of a couple of dots it's it's, it's like somebody came around with a little stamp that was green and put, just put like three random stamps on it and that was it it wasn't you know it, it it's not my favorite it's not hideous by any means but it's just <laughs> I can understand why she might not have worn it for 40 years because she has access to really big gorgeous tiaras that nobody else is gonna like fight with her to wear because they belong to her side of the family so why would you wear the ugliest one you know i mean i can start a great conspiracy theory you could be like oh yeah kate and camilla were like uh we're wearing new cool tiara so can you all like not try to upstage us and she was like yeah. i'm gonna upstage them with an the ugly tiara so. yeah <laughs> so it's like i'm upstaging them by wearing something that i haven't worn for 40 years but it's also really ugly so you <laughs> know. they can't really be angry with me exactly yeah you know, I, I think it it will be interesting to see what happens to the Gloucester tiaras. Because as I mentioned, they've got a lot of them that are their families. They were inherited by previous the previous Duchess of Gloucester and have stayed with that line. And we've seen in the past from like Princess Margaret's children that they've often had to sell off tiaras because I don't want to get to, this is really boring, but the way the inheritance tax works in the UK it's not like you get a hundred thousand pounds and then a bunch of stuff. So you pay tax on the hundred thousand pounds. You have to pay tax on the value of the estate. So when you get given a tiara, you have to pay tax on that tiara, even if you haven't 
you know, even though it's it's just a tiara, it's not actually worth anything sitting in a cupboard. You haven't sold it. You don't have the money. So if you don't have the money sitting in your bank account to pay the tax for what the tiara is worth, then you have to sell the tiara in order to pay the tax. And also their children don't have any opportunity really to wear six or seven or eight tiaras because um, they don't get invited to things that would need a tiara. So it will just be like eight tiaras sitting in a cupboard somewhere not being used. Um, so, you know, I wonder if in the future, once the Duchess of Gloucester has passed away, are they going to leave all of these tiaras to the crown or to the monarch? Um, or are they going to leave them to the kids and they'll sell them and we'll lose access to all of these tiaras? We don't know, but it's just, uh, you know, when I saw her wearing something I've been that she hasn't worn in so long, it made me realise quite how many tiaras they have in their collection. And also that question mark about what's going to happen to those, to that quite sizable. And, and in some cases, there's some really big, beautiful pieces. You know, what's going to happen to those? It's really fascinating how many British tiaras are not in the modern mm. collection of tiaras. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, because I think Britain have a lot of tiaras, far more than we think about, because we just, they tend to rotate the same view, but the majority of them are the that you know they're Kent tiaras or um, like Princess Anne has her own tiaras that belong to her and like Sophie has some tiaras that belong to her or they're aristocrat tiaras. So a lot of the tiaras we see so regularly aren't mainline crown tiaras. So like they could all go. <laughs> Fifty years we're like oh not one of these three again. But yeah, yeah. Exactly. Like, I mean, one of my favorite tiaras is the Baltimore, which Princess Margaret wore, and they had to, her children had to sell that. And I will always be devastated. And I think there's also like these tiaras, if they're on the, if they're being sold on the open market, will go for a lot of money. And so the royals in the UK, in particular, don't want to be like seen to be spending lots of money on tiaras. So I think the only way we're going to get them back in the main line is if they're left as a will in the will as the inheritance, if they're left to the monarch, which is fine. They can do that. Anyone can leave anything to the monarch if they want to. Um, but that's the only way I can see it happening. I don't think the royals would publicly buy it. Yeah, me neither. Um, so, you know, this one, this one that she wore, the Princess Alice's emerald and diamond tiara thing, that one I'm fine with them selling. Yeah, this one can go. Yeah, I'm more fussed <laughs> about this one. Some of the others, I'm more fussed about. Yeah, exactly. But uh, but yeah, no, I mean, good on her for still keeping things spicy. So our next big surprise tiara moment was the new queen. It's not really new anymore, is she? But um, it helps to differentiate Queen Camilla wearing the late queen's Burmese ruby tiara for the first time. Yeah, so this is a tiara that the Queen had commissioned in the 1970s. Um, she didn't have a lot of ruby tiaras at her disposal at the time. And, you know, depending on what you're wearing, it's nice to have like an emerald, a sapphire, a ruby, a, a diamond, you know, have all the bases covered just in case, depending on what order, the colour of the sash you're wearing and all those sorts of things. So she wanted a ruby one. So she broke up the Nizam of Hyderabad tiara to, which I pronounced terribly, but, you know. <laughs> to make this Burmese ruby tiara, which it wasn't one of her most worn tiaras, but apparently it was last worn in 2019. And obviously we had COVID in 2020 to 2022, and then she died. So it was being worn right up until the end. Yeah, I think the Burmese ruby tiara 
is as or good to Arizona, a bit controversial mm. um because it is interestingly styled um it's it's quite big it's a very big tiara um it's got 96 rubies scattered around it in like sort of circles um and i don't even know how to describe these kind of like we will post pictures peacock feathery diamondy things um and people were grumpy because <laughs> the queen obviously broke up another tiara which is more fan favorite more classic uh to make it but i am going to say i think it really suits camilla <laughs> it reminds this is uh, i wrote i don't know <laughs> when i wrote this down it was probably like 1am i don't know um but it's the like the jewelry equivalent of those plastic olive green bathroom sets from 1970s houses <laughs> do you know what i'm talking about the bathroom sets yeah yeah oh, that's God. when i was writing that i was like that's the only thing it, like it just feels 70s it feels slightly like it was made at the time to be you know you know it was worn it, that it was trendy at that time so it kind of it just it, it reminds me of that kind of like it's just a little bit dated it's not like terrible um but it's just not really my favorite design but I totally agree with you I thought it looked really good on Camilla much better than it no offense to you know the Glade Queen but it looked much better than it ever looked on the Queen yeah, I think, you know, people didn't like it. I didn't, I've never hated the chair. It's not my favourite, but it never looked good on the Queen. She was obviously the only person that ever wore it. So I it, I could definitely see why people would be like, why would you ruin a perfectly good tiara on this tiara? However, now I've seen it on Camilla, whose hair is slightly yellower than the Queen's was, because obviously the Queen wore her hair, sort of, not always, but in recent years, obviously it's white. Um, and Camilla's got more hair than the Queen, I think, has had since the 70s. <laughs> Um, and it just even like her face shape it seemed to suit her really well and I think of a lot of the tiaras Camilla's worn it's one of the ones that suited her the most yeah she really suits tiaras you know how some people have got like a hat face where they just look good in hats and other yeah. people don't she's got a tiara face things unlike the Duchess of Gloucester I understand why Camilla is wearing this now because obviously her circumstances change she is now the queen and Charles isn't going to wear any of the tiaras which means that Camilla effectively can wear whatever she wants from the royal collection like anything she wants so it's understandable that she's starting to break out more new tiaras now that she didn't previously have access to and people get very excited about it obviously because it's like a tiara debut on a you know a new a old tiara on a new person um i personally would prefer to be like drip fed the new tiaras i want one new tiara appearance from camilla every year <laughs> yeah otherwise she's gonna burn through them all mm-hmm. and then we'll be going oh, I've already seen this again mm-hmm. for 20 years exactly yeah and it's also like every time she wears one it's sort of it almost like we don't know how the tiara loan situation is going to work because it previously under the queen's guidance was like you got your queen tiaras and then you had your your Kate tiaras and your Anne tiara and your safe they all had their little tiara baskets I assume where they came and collected their tiaras um, and we don't know if it's going to be the same thing or if they're just going to like swap and change. But every time she wears a new one, I'm like, okay, that's a queen tiara now. It's out of the, it's out of rotation for everyone else. But until they get worn, I'm like, it could be anyone. They could grow up in anything. It's so exciting. Yeah, because I mean, like if you go to somewhere like Sweden, they have a couple of tiaras which are reserved for the queen. 
or specific people but then there's also a big chunk of tiaras which are shared amongst the whole family and anybody in the family can wear them and so it is a real surprise as to who's going to wear it and who's not and you don't necessarily know and they have their favorites and ones they wear less often and things but there is that surprise element to it and I would quite like that in the UK to be honest. For the uh, finale tiara moment um, I feel like I need to set the scene because for me, this is a very exciting moment. Um, so I was ill. I woke up delirious about two o'clock in the afternoon and I checked my phone and I saw Kate in this cape and I was like, wow, fell asleep again. <laughs> um, woke up the next morning at about three in the morning, checked my phone and saw what Tiara Kate had worn, fell asleep and woke up and genuinely thought I just dreamt it. I was like, what a weird dr- specific dream I had. Because the Princess of Wales came out of this Tiara with a... Uh, out of the tiara, out of the banquet with a tiara that has not been seen since like the 1930s nearly 100 years ago um which is the late queen mother's strathmore rose tiara which um i think if you go back to our tiara episode you will find is in my top three tiaras so Ooh. i was very excited the strathmore rose was created in the 1920s for the queen mother um and she wore it a couple of times mostly most famously in sort of like a photo shoot so we did get some good photographs of it um and then it hasn't been worn for over 90 years um <laughs> it is featured in some documentaries and some exhibits and things so we did think that it probably still existed but there was it hadn't been worn for so long that the thought was maybe it's perhaps too fragile to wear um and so it's only a tiara that can be in books and exhibitions it's not something that could actually be worn by a person and you know I actually did have an ask uh a message on tumblr it was like why is this such a big deal and (laughs) I and they were like I know that it hasn't been worn for like 90 years but why is who cares basically and um I mean I (laughs) I've been blogging for 10 years now and then I was lurking for about two years before that so that's 12 years in total in case you can't do the maths and the Strath I cannot tell you what a grip the Strathmore Rose tiara had over this fandom on Tumblr every time there was a wedding or a state banquet or the diplomatic reception anything that was tiara related everyone had like is this going to be the moment that the Strathmore Rose comes up and every time it was like what's your wish list for what you know this person will wear at their wedding it was always oh I hope that they wear the Strathmore rose even if it was somebody you didn't like you were still like (laughs) oh I really hope that we get to see somebody in the Strathmore rose so it's come up like six times every year for the last 12 years people going oh where's the Strathmore rose it does it still exist I don't know if it still exists can it still be worn I don't know if it can still be worn you know is anybody ever going to wear it again I would love to see it on this person but I don't think you know so I genuinely cannot and and also like Kate's consistently worn the lover's knot occasionally a couple of other tiaras but pretty much always consistently the lover's knot so even if it was going to be seen I didn't expect it to be seen on her now so I genuinely cannot tell you how it might seem stupid but how significant this was because it's something that people have been waiting ages for yeah I just I remember you know I was absolutely hand on heart convinced Megan was going to wear it for her wedding like solidly I was like yep it's Strathmore Rose and then she came out in a diff a completely shocking amazing tiara that suited her infinitely more than the Strathmore Rose would have suited her um and I'm glad she ended up with the tiara she did but I was like ah, I was wrong I see we will just never see the Strathmore Rose again until Charlotte is 18 was it maybe when she's 18 question mark um because <laughs> so I'm just like okay 
have to wait for the next tiny child to wear it. Um, because it's such a sort of small, mm. dainty tiara. It's very like young, youthful, new, fresh, um, even though it's 100 years old. Um, so yeah, I was absolutely shocked. Um, I genuinely thought I was just like, yeah, I've had a really oddly specific dream that came all the Strathmore Rose and I read it on Twitter. Clearly, it was not a dream. Um, but yeah, everyone was shocked. And then that was how I found out I was real because I went on Tumblr and I just we were like, that was Strathmore Rose. And I was like, I don't know, it did happen. <laughs> yeah, it's not just a fever dream. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's see where we are now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it was a huge moment. Like, it genuinely was a massive surprise for everybody. That And we've been waiting for such a long time for this tiara to be worn by literally anyone um, at this point. And so it was so, it was very, you know, it was very exciting for a lot of people. I'm going to be Debbie Downer, <laughs> as I always am, and say that after 12 years of waiting for this tiara, 90 years of not having it be worn by anybody, wasn't that great? <laughs> What do you think? Because I don't know. I don't. I don't know too much about what you think. I liked. I did like it. I think it. I just like the tiara. Um, my issue was obviously you can see they have. I'm gonna call it the like the base of the tiara, <clears throat> the bit that should blend in with your hair, and it's brown, so it should blend in with Kate's hair, and it does. Except you can kind of see where it sort of attaches to the metal bits of the tiara. So I just kind of wanted them to give Kate a bit more like back combing. <laughs> front so I couldn't see that part of it um because it really stood out in the pictures because it's obviously not the exact shade of her hair yeah I mean apart from that I loved it and I'm very glad she wore it and I will not hear slander about my favorite tiara however I was like just I just want to like get up on like I don't know photoshop and just like photoshop that part of it so I'd have to see it anymore yeah yeah definitely that was the, that was the bit that bothers me is the gap between the base of the tiara and the head so a lot of tiaras will fix that by adding in a base that's like di- diamonds so crown princess mary did that with one of her tiaras i think it was her wedding tiara she added like there was a gap between the bottom of the tiara and the head and so she filled that gap with like a diamond strip that's something that i think could be a solution to this potentially but at the moment it's just like it's the gap and then there's like a band which kind of looks like a pipe cleaner which is the same color as your hair which is meant to blend in but the problem is up close it doesn't blend in because Kate doesn't have big volume to her hair like Camilla does so you can see it it just looks like a a pipe cleaner on her head um and from far away it does blend in and so it looks like the tiara is like floating which is odd it just it just doesn't really work for me so if it was like a strip of diamonds it was made in the 1920s for the Queen Mother and she wore it in the 20s, 30s kind of style, which was like as a headband across the forehead. And so it looked really great at the time because it was very contemporary. Um, but that doesn't necessarily work for 2023. And there were other tiaras that the Queen Mother wore as a headband that look really good as tiaras, like the Lotus Flower. Um, but it's just something about the design of the Strathmore Rose that has that kind of that gappy thing. It's, it's similar to the Duchess of Gloucester in that it doesn't feel like it was made to be a tiara. It feels like a strip of flowers and somebody just was like, oh, well, we'll just put a pipe cleaner on this and stick it on someone's head. <laughs> and I think deep down, I always knew this would be the case, but I just didn't want to be honest with myself um, that it ne- it just needs a bit, a bit of amending. It's not hor- horrendous. It just ne- needs something to address that gap because I don't see Kate having massive volume, you know, Camilla style in her hair anytime <laughs> soon. 
Um, so I, I think, and I, I think unfortunately that probably won't happen until Charles passes away and Kate has access to all of the tiaras as the queen. Um, but I just, yeah, I, it, it needed needs a bit of alteration for me to really love it. And it's a shame that that didn't happen before it was first seen for 90 odd years. <laughs> yeah, I think I, before she wore it, I always wanted her to wear it as like across the forehead. And now I've seen it, I definitely don't want that. No. Because I don't think it was okay in any way. Um, and I think everything they did with it, apart from the fact you could see the, the band, was great. Because I think it suits having her hair down. Like, it needs that kind of... Because it's, it is a really delicate-looking tiara. Like, some tiaras look like the Burmese Ruby one. It's just like, kapow, it's there. And it's a great big diamond wall. Um, but I very much feel like I could snap the Strathmore if I just touched it in the wrong way. Um, so it was very delicate. She wore the the Lady Queen sort of diamondy framed earrings that were quite big, but again they look quite delicate. And um, everything else was so kind of pared back. Um, and I can see why they weren't going to like volumize her hair. Because I don't think that would have looked good. However, um, yeah, I think the idea of a diamond strand across the bottom is a really good one. I always just was like, can't you just like stick the hair over that bit? I mean, it would look ugly, but I'm sure there's got to be a way <laughs> that you could just hide it a little bit more. Yeah, it is just that gap. Uh, so it's it's salvageable, It's I think. I mean, I don't know. I don't make any tiaras. Um, and I also realise like every critique I have of it is like, what if you did this that makes it look a bit more like the Nizam of Hyderabad tiara that the Queen dismantled for the Burmese? <laughs> like every suggestion I'm like, well, you could fill out this bit. And this bit, and then you can add it, yeah, and I'm just making it into the into that tiara. Um, so I have to be conscious of that. So I just, yeah, I don't think it de- it de- it needs anything drastic. It just needs like some little tweaks. But it does, to me, again, kind of make me think about the future. And <laughs> I was going to say I'm really worried. I'm not worried because it <laughs> doesn't impact anything at all. But I do think that Kate doesn't have. Uh, this is going to be controversial. Um, but Kate doesn't have Camilla's tiara face. Like Kate, re- Kate really suits certain tiaras, and there are some that I'm really looking forward to seeing her wear. So I think the girls of Great Britain and Ireland tiara, for example, I think she'll look great in like fringes and kakoshniks and those sorts of like the quite plain diamond ones that are a bit bigger. But like I just can't imagine Kate being able to pull off the Burmese ruba, ruby, ruba, ruby. <laughs> no, people keep being like, I'd love to see Kate in like especially people go I want a sapphire tiara for Kate but I don't think it would suit her because I don't think when she apart from her sapphire she wears sapphire earrings and the sapphire obviously her sapphire engagement ring but I don't think sapphire is really her gem um apart from that I don't think that her the ones that suit her the most um the gemstone tiaras apart from you know we've seen the Duchess of Worcester's little one but they tend to be bigger because you're incorporating diamonds and gemstones um and they normally and you know we literally just said <laughs> about Duchess of Gloucester's tiara that like the colored gems need somewhere to shine they need to be big and in your face um and I know the lovers knot has got the pearls that you could you could swap out for colored gemstones but I think it wouldn't suit Kate whereas on someone else you'd be like oh wow swap it out put some rubies in there i'm like don't leave the pearls <laughs> <laughs> she's she's a tall person 
but she's also quite like her face is quite small her head is small it's not disproportionate to her body and it's <laughs> and it's not a criticism it's just that it, it, it's a fact you know it and it's not impossible to be a smaller or p- more petite person and still look great in a big tiara because queen letizia does it but i don't know how she does it she's just got some magical ability where she looks really great but normally the big tiaras need like big hair they do tend to work more on older women who have that kind of short volume hair like queen sylvia and queen sonia of norway or camilla and i don't see kate doing that anytime soon and having that kind of short volume diana style hair i don't think that's gonna happen and um yeah it's 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 not even like this it's a very particular kind of tiara because like the the lover's knot is not small but it's got lots of spaces in it so it you know it's not just a wall of tiaras as you can a wall of diamonds as you i think described it earlier um like whereas things like the um the ruby tiara are just a wall of jewels like it it feels very solid and i just don't know if that's going to look as good on her sort of quite delicate features as it looks on somebody like camilla who you know just is able to pull it off so yeah it's not that i'm worried because that makes it sound ridiculous but um and there are some pieces that i think will look lovely there's also some pieces that haven't been seen for a while like the sapphire sapphire bandeau tiara which you know could look nice on her because it's a bit smaller but i just um yeah, I kind of, I don't know if it's going to work as well on her as it did on Camilla. And I hope I'm wrong. I hope that, you know, when Charles dies, Kate will be older, obviously. So maybe she will have a different vibe and will be able to pull those off a bit more. And there are, as you know, as I said, there are some that I think are bigger, but still would work. But um, it just kind of, seeing her in this tiara just made me kind of realise like, she's obviously very beautiful. She obviously looks very beautiful in pretty much everything. But just because you're beautiful doesn't necessarily mean that every tiara is going to work on you. And that is a motto for life. Yeah. Yeah. A very (laughs) sort of depressing one and very specific to only a very small group of people. Um, But it is a motto. (laughs) Yes. So our third and final topic. Uh, we're still sticking with something that happened fairly recently. Uh, Crown Princess Victoria gave a speech at the Bundestag, which is the National Parliament of Germany, uh, on German National Day of Mourning for the victims of war and violence. I've seen it referred to as different things in different places, like because it's a German word, so the translation of it is different, but essentially it is a day of mourning for people who've died during war and violence. Anyway, so yes, Crown Princess Victoria had been in Germany for a couple of days, uh, giving going to various other things, and then she was invited to give this speech at the Bundestag. Um, uh, so my first bit is kind of analysis of the speech itself. Yeah. Cool. So um, she started off talking in, in the speech about her personal connection to Germany. I'm not going to dwell on that, because I will mention that later on. Uh, but she then spoke about like the relationships between Sweden and Germany more j- broadly and started off by talking about war. Um, so, for example, her ancestor uh, fought against Germany on behalf of Napoleon, because remember, the Swedish royal family were originally French or Sweden and Germany fought against each other during the Thirty Years War in the 17th century. Going to be honest, I didn't know any of these things. No, I didn't know Sweden and Germany had any relationship at all. No, me neither. I was like, what? <laughs> they fought against each other? What did that happen? Um, but yeah. And so, yeah, so she talked to, you know, about a couple of sort of, you know, we have to remember that even though we've got great relationships, we haven't always had great relationships. We have fought against each other. And then she kind of rounded that bit up by saying, 
And I quote, what we lost in power and glory, we gained back in the form of more than 200 years of peace because Sweden had lost the conflict that she was speaking about. And um, I liked that she kind of started it off by not shying away from war, which is what the point of the day was, and kind of talking about war quite openly um, and the fact that the two countries fought each other, but then kind of like didn't leave that as like the final note of like, we we hate each other for a really long time and we killed each other. You know, it wasn't just end of sentence. She kind of balanced it with, oh, but the flip side of having been at war with each other is that we've been able to then sort of build friendship during peacetime. I've noticed in the last like two or three years since COVID, I don't think COVID has been relevant in this at all. It has been since COVID that when royal families are visiting other countries, they're far more willing to be like, remember that, that war we had? Mm -hmm. We were bad. I'm going to move past it. Yeah, and also always with Germany as well, or often with Germany. Like Charles will apolo apologise for what happened with the Dresden bombings and how many people we, innocent people we killed in Germany. So, yeah, this is Germany and like, sorry, we messed up. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's a, if you'd gone back to 1946 or something and been like, oh, this is a text of a speech that the British king will deliver in Germany, people would have been like, what? <laughs> like, We're taking over. We're the German king. Yeah. It's always good to not like skirt around the issue. Like she was there to talk about people who died during war. They were at war with each other. That's a historical fact. And, um, you know, and then, but then always kind of counterbalancing it with, we were then able to be friends in peacetime. So that's good kind of thing i've actually then the rest my next section is summarizing all of the rest of the speech <laughs> <laughs> okay let's go with it because i feel like that was kind of the introduction but then the rest of it was it kind of felt like a thesis so i'll explain she talked about how no country knows how fragile peace and freedom and hope is than germany obviously allusions to the war and kind of the post-war with the berlin wall and things and she said that those experiences might be uniquely German, but they also have insights for all of us. And to quote, peace and freedom are not natural laws given once and for all. They are a commodity that is more fragile than we think and for which each of us must work in large and small ways. And then she kind of related that to the present day and about how the current landscape is very tense and the world feels very insecure because of Ukraine and what's happening in the Middle East. And so I think this kind of central thesis of the speech that I, I I find it difficult to break the rest of the speech up because it felt like such a coherent thought was about kind of, she's in Germany and Germany offers an example or an emblem of the fact that countries can overcome dark pasts, that they can overcome war and violence. But in order to do that, it takes cooperation from everybody particularly her as a representative of her nation and the people in that room who were the representatives of Germany because they're elected members of the parliament um and so how we should all kind of feel this sense of duty and responsibility to keep that going no I think you're definitely right it was very much kind of not a call cool, I don't want to say call cool to arms because that's almost like the exact opposite of what she's doing um but it was very it felt like a very like a rallying sort of cool to be and it was I really liked the kind of emphasis she was putting on and she does this a lot in her speeches but on like the fact that you put have to put effort into peace like it's not just our natural state isn't just chilling and being at peace like you have to work with people and she does this in a lot of speeches not 
necessarily about peace but about like you know we have to work to look after the environment and you have to work to promote Sweden and it's all about like people working together comes through a lot in everything she says um but I really sort of liked I like there was a little part where she was you know where she was talking about um how in World War Two Sweden distanced itself from Germany but you know over the years they Sweden got over themselves <laughs> and <were> like <laughs> okay we'll be friends again um and they kind of like rebuilt their relationship mm-hmm. and they're now allies and I thought you know it was a very sort of I can't think of way to phrase it like it was on the line where I could imagine like a revolutionary political leader giving it but also it also felt perfectly fine coming from a royal like I wasn't gonna be like whoa Victoria take a chill pill <laughs> slightly too much there like it was just it was fine but it was very it sounded very dramatic. The in, I think the concept of like peace not being a given is quite an interesting thing anyway. Um, and you picked up on it as well. Of like, I you hear this a lot from people where you see videos of children who are like friends with somebody who looks very different from them. And then people in the comment section are like, see, this is just proof that, you know, children are taught to hate. People are taught to hate and we don't come born with it. I beg to differ. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think that because of our evolutionary sort of instincts that, you know, most of what our behavior is in some way influenced by evolution, I think that historically we would have been predisposed to dislike or, dis, you know, not trust people who are not like us people, for whatever reason, people who are from a different group. Those, the in-group, out-group thing is a very, very old construct in human nature. But that doesn't mean a lot of people then just stop there and go, oh, well, it's human nature to hate somebody else. So that's fine. <laughs> that's not what I'm saying either. What I'm saying is I think there is a human impulse that comes that isn't taught. That is something that is in our DNA to not feel as comfortable with people who are not like us as people who are like us. And then what we as fully thinking adults have to do is to question, you know, is this behavior that or this is this my lack of uh, feeling comfortable with somebody else is that actually just because of my weird little you know ne- uh, caveman brain or is this actually because they've done something that I don't like uh, you know it, it so I thought it, you know I say I sometimes think like I understand the point that people are making but it I I don't know if it's true and I think that was quite nice for you know Victoria to be like actually you know it's it's not it's not in human nature necessarily that we're automatically all going to be peaceful and it's just a couple of people ruining it for everyone else this is something that we all have to work on and we all have to sort of take responsibility for it. But she was also framing it as like, that's not a negative thing. Like that's something that is an honor, which we've talked about in previous episodes of like one of the reasons Victoria is so good at her job is that she genuinely believes that being the crown princess of Sweden is a privilege and not a burden. Yeah. I mean, she's a good speech giver, Mm -hmm. Um, but not just, because she can give like she can do the speaking bit well which we'll get to but like her words always feel like in every speech she gives there's a real sort of they all kind of interlink and there is Mm -hmm. this talking about working hard and being a team and taking pleasure in what you do yeah um no matter what she's talking about and it it almost feels like it rather than almost like some words have you know this is my passion and this is my other bit of my passion and the never the twain shall meet. Yeah. It all links. And it's like everything she does is just part of her work as the crown princess of Sweden to make Sweden a better place. You know, Victoria has 
a long history of interest in conflict resolution and in peacekeeping. And she studied both of those things at university. So she's very well versed in this topic. She's not talking about something that she doesn't understand. Um, but I do think that other people who were doing a speech for this event, it might have dwelled a bit too much on the, we all used to kill each other all the time and Germany was really bad during the war. Um, and then some people might have been all hope and none of the actual like substance of actually we did a really bad thing or your country did a bad thing and we all have to be honest about that. Whenever you have a speech that's about like remembrance, it can feel quite slow and like backwards looking, like it's looking at the past. Whereas this is an example of a rare remembrance speech, which felt urgent and felt like she was looking to the future as much as she was looking to the past that's a long ramble but does that make sense no yeah that definitely makes sense it was definitely a positive speech about mm-hmm. remembrance yeah not, uh, like it sucked everyone died yeah <laughs> yeah so yeah I, I really enjoyed like just analyzing the speech itself and I think I you know I've, we've analyzed quite a few speeches uh, over the last couple of years and it's the first time I've ever done that where I've gone, okay, I've got a bit at the beginning, but I actually can't break up the rest of it because it feels like such a continuous, like coherent point that's like one point being made in every paragraph. Um, I've never, I don't think I've ever done that in any other speech I've analysed. So that's quite interesting. I always use Charles as my other like go-to speech person. Like Charles's speeches are very typical of a royal speech and of a political speech. And like, you've got your personal anecdote, your funny moment, um slight knowledge of like the bad things that have happened we're sorry about that uh then they talk about football or something (laughs) um between the two countries and then they move on and then we're like oh also we did something bad but we're over that um and then here are some good things we do like it's it's broken into its parts um and everyone gets a little bit insulted and everyone gets you know praised and by the end of it everyone's happy and besties yeah definitely Something else that was very significant about it was not just the construction of the speech or the point that she was making, but also that she did the whole thing in German. I forget frequently that she speaks German. <laughs> it, yeah. So I was a little bit, and when I f- listened to the speech, I was like, this doesn't sound very Swedish to yeah, me. Yeah. But to my untrained ear, I don't know what language it was until I checked. I was like, oh, they're in Germany. That makes more sense. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my immediate reaction when I saw it was knowing, you know, I hadn't seen the translation. I had absolutely no idea what she was saying. She was just speaking German, which is a language I never learned. I don't know any, and except 99 red balloons. I don't know how to say anything in German. <laughs> um, so I thought watching it as knowing nothing that she came across incredibly confident. And I think if you like took all of her speeches and muted them and just focused on like her body language and how comfortable she looked, um, I thought like she seemed much more confident in German than she does in English. Yeah, and I, I thought that that was potentially like just me imagining it and because I don't actually know any German. So she could have been absolutely useless and just been very confident about it. Um, <laughs> but I did have lots of people who came to me like on Tumblr and things and were like, no, actually, yeah, she's she's very good in German and she did seem very comfortable. So I'm not just imagining it. She was very good in German, apparently. Yeah, I think I wrote that she seems really confident. I think, you know, all the how to give a speech instructions like she followed really well like she like the notes were at waist high and she was looking around the room but I think for royals when they are giving these really big speeches even when they are a very confident speech giver 
you can often tell they're like, okay, this is this is important. Um, and I'm giving a speech, you know, not in my native language or, you know, in a, even a couple of words in a different language or in a room where the majority of people aren't speaking the language I'm going to give the speech in. Um, and you can feel like there's a sort of <clears throat> palpable sense of relief when they're done. But I think because Victoria seemed so confident all the way through the speech, you never got that sense of relief at the end because she was just like, yeah, done. Yeah. Easy peasy. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think, I mean, we've all got to remember, like this was a high pressure speech in a language that isn't her native language. She's also dyslexic. So giving speeches generally is quite difficult for Victoria. She, she's always said that she struggles to give speeches and it's not her favourite part of the job and everything. But I also think there was kind of an attitude that I saw from some people that was kind of like, oh, well, yeah, of course she can speak in German because her mum's German. And, you know, <laughs> she, she grew up bilingual. So like, yeah, it's impressive, but it's not that impressive because lots of people grew up in bilingual households. Um, and she did kind of speak at the beginning of her speech about, you know, the fact that she's very close to Germany because her mother is half German and a lot of her mother's family, most of her mother's family lived in Germany uh, while she was growing up and things like that. But actually, as somebody who is a big supporter or a big follower of Crown Princess Victoria and has followed her for a very long time, we were always told that Victoria wasn't very good at German. So Sylvia was a sort of polyglot. She was a translator. So she speaks like seven languages or something. And when she came to Sweden, she was actively discouraged from speaking any language other than Swedish. Uh, the story, I don't know how truthful this is, but the story is that, you know, Carl Gustav is fluent in, in German because his mother was German. But when his German relatives speak German to him, he responds in English. He doesn't speak German. Like he is not something that he does. I don't know why particularly, but that's always <laughs> been the, the story. And also you have to remember that Victoria was born in the late 1970s. So went to you know, that's when she had her early childhood was in the late 1970s. And at the time, the thought was that if you teach a child like preschool, uh, if you teach them to be bilingual, or if you speak to them in multiple languages, that will be detrimental to their learning because children at that age, they thought only had space in their brain for one language. And so if you were teaching them multiple, they wouldn't, they would just basically be rubbish at all of them. So in reality, Krampus's Victoria probably didn't learn German from her parents. Her cousins will have spoken German, so she may have spoken it a little bit with them, but she's spoken in the past about how she learned German at school, um, like other people. For me, as somebody who's been following Victoria for a really long time, it was not a given at all that she would be able to speak German well, because she learned it at school like so many other people. And, you know, I know I know tons of people who learned German at school <laughs> and would not be able to speak fluent German to the Bundestag, you know, today. Yeah, I mean, I learned Spanish at school, <clears throat> and I was very good at my Spanish UCC, my A star, could not have, a, I can't have a conversation in Spanish. Like, yeah. like I think it is so hard. To, I didn't learn a language as a child, like a, as a young child. I didn't start learning a language until secondary school, which was Spanish. Um, and I have always found learning languages so tricky. And I don't understand how you learn. <laughs> and I'm like, why can't I just pick up a language? I'd love to speak every language. But how would you learn all of the words? Um, but I always found that I could read in Spanish quite easily. I could write in Spanish quite easily. I can't speak in Spanish very well. And I'm awful at listening in Spanish because I'm like, nope, they would sound the same thing to me. Um, so to be able to have the confidence to not only have a speech written in German, mm -hmm. 
um, which which is different than having a speech written in Swedish and translated to German. It was must have been originally yeah. written in German, otherwise it would have sounded weird. Um, and then to deliver it without worrying about pronunciation or um, anything like that is really incredible. And, and I you're dyslexic. Before, yeah, <laughs> you're dyslexic. You're not doing you're just in a different language. Um, although I have heard, apparently, if you are dyslexic, it's easier to learn other languages because you're not as fixated on your original language. Oh, that might, that might make sense. Yeah, you don't know your original language as well. You're always doing extra things to like, compensate for your dyslexia. You do When you do other languages, you just do the same things. But yeah, I think um, it, we talk, we, when we did our episode about clever, it wasn't not an episode, the Luxembourg royal family. <laughs> Oh, yes. um, they all speak about 47 languages each but they are bilingual because they grew up in bilingual mm. households or trilingual households and then they went to finishing school in Sweden and Switzerland yeah. and you know they've traveled and they grew up speaking these languages and that's impressive I'm not going well just, they just taught just a child. obviously it's very impressive that like Princess Claire Luxembourg speaks six languages but I think when you go to Sweden and where, you know, Sylvia's non-Swedish languages were actively repressed mm-hmm. through Victoria's childhood, to have the confidence to do it now is really impressive. Yeah. It's an impressive many times, but you know. No, I think I think that's I think it is impressive. I think that, you know, there's a I don't think people are trying to undermine it. I think people are just kind of being like, oh well, yeah, of course. It's expected, but actually, it really wasn't. Kind of, I, as somebody who follows her diligently, it really was not that expected because we had always been told that she wasn't very good in German. Um, and, like she can't speak Portuguese. Her mum's half Brazilian. She can't. She can only say a couple of sentences and like lullabies and things in Portuguese. She can't do. She can't speak it properly. So it could be exactly the same in German. German, but she obviously, you know, did a very good job of learning it in school. And I, you know, I we, coming from the UK. I think a lot of our listeners are from like Norway and Sweden. So to them, they'll be like, oh, we all speak two languages. Um, <laughs> obviously, because they're listening to a podcast in English. Um, but I, I, it's, you know, in the UK, our language education is absolutely terrible because everybody speaks English. So it's never been uh, something that's that important to people. We start learning much later than other countries. Um, the way that it's taught is not particularly great. So I like, I learned French at school. I, I could tell, ask where the library is and you know I can understand some street signs and stuff like that but I, I couldn't have a conversation and I've been learning Swedish on Duolingo now for two years and I as like you I, I can understand the captions on Instagram um but I also get really tired so I'll, I'll read like two paragraphs and I'll be like oh this, I'm just going to translate it on Google Translate because I can't bother <laughs> to read the other six paragraphs on this article on the uh, on the royal website um so it's just encouraging my own laziness so I I'm always very impressed at anybody who can speak any other languages um but particularly when it's like she just learned it at school someone said to me um in five years time you're going to give a speech to the German parliament in German I would like no no literally I don't I can't I don't that's not enough time <laughs> I'm 73 that's still too far not far enough away from me I need longer. yeah I can't. and my last kind of thing that I thought about was just like how significant this is for her as the crown princess she actually mentioned that herself about like which she doesn't do very often I don't think um of kind of how it was such an important moment for her to be there as the crown princess and a representative of the kingdom of Sweden like she'll often you know royals often will say oh I'm really pleased to be here today but I don't know it just it felt like she was saying it was personally important for her sort of 
progression and a, a significant moment for her as the, the crown princess. And I would say this is definitely her biggest international speech to date. Yeah, definitely. It felt really significant. And I think as soon as she, I found out she'd given a speech in the German parliament, I was like, Charles did that and it was a really big yeah, thing. Yeah. <laughs> I remember that. That was very recent. That's in my head. <sighs> Giving a speech in fluent German at the Bundestag has now become like the royal status symbol. So <laughs> I it, celebrity celebrities have this where like there'll be a thing that they are all trying to do at that point in time that's like showing off that they're like the cool celebrities. Uh I think we talked in our episode about the the CBB's bedtime story, um oh, yeah. which Kate did, and how in the UK there's like a waiting list years long of celebrities who want to get onto the be- bedtime story on CBBS for, for some strange reason it's like a real status symbol like you've made it if you know i think at one point in time it would have been if you've got your own wikipedia page that means that you've made it you're famous um nowadays with celebrities i think it's like or it was it, this might be tailing off now but it was if you had your home featured in architectural digest so I don't know if you've seen this, but there's like celebrities to do tours of their home for Architectural Digest, which was just a, you know, an architecture magazine. It became like the thing if like all celebrities wanted to have their house featured um, or like the, is it 74 questions for Vogue? Yeah, the Vogue 74 questions. That's another one that's like, if you get asked to do your 74 questions, it's like you're a proper celebrity. And the royal version of that seems to be you are a proper royal, like a, you are in the elite royal gang if you give a speech in fluent German at the Bundestag. So we have Charles, now we've had Victoria, and now I'm like, mm, yeah, you're a royal, but like, have you given a speech in German at the Bundestag? Have you? Mm, so you're not <laughs> real royal, are you? It's just weird how that's happened in the course of the last year. Yeah, just suddenly we're like, okay, so now Charles has done it. Everyone's going to do it because yeah. that's how you separate yourself. Yeah. When we like, I remember when um, the president of Ukraine came to the UK and gave a speech. He did it in Westminster Hall, um, not in the palaces of Parliament, and it just looked really awkward. It looked like at a party when someone's giving a speech, and you're kind of in the middle of dancing and like eating, but you're stood there like, "Yay, wrap it up." <laughs> um, whereas in the Bundestag, because it reminds me of like when you see pictures of the UN. And everyone sort of yeah. sat around looking down. It looks a lot more like serious and impactful. Yeah, it's like a stadium. You know, the fact that it is the German parliament over any other country is part of why it was significant. Because over the last few years, particularly since Russia invaded Ukraine, Sweden has been much more closely aligning itself with the rest of Europe. So joining NATO. Um, it had the EU presidency in the first half of 2023. And of course, Germany is, I would say, the most powerful country in Europe in terms of like political power. In terms of her sort of diplomatic journey and in terms of what's going on in Sweden, it was a very important speech to like impress the most powerful people in Europe when your country is actively trying after years and years of kind of being quite neutral to kind of align itself much more closely with the EU. So like there was also a lot of pressure. It wasn't just the pressure of delivering a speech in, in another country, delivering a speech in a foreign language, delivering a speech for like a quite a somber event where the tone is quite important. It was also quite a significant speech because 
it was a significant moment for potentially Sweden of like being able to build relationships between those two countries. So she'd said something that had upset Germany. You know, she could have completely derailed um, Sweden's relationship with Germany and potentially with the rest of Europe. So it was actually there was actually quite a lot of weight on this one speech. I I always think I'm not remotely scared of giving speeches mm-hmm. despite the fact I have always been incredibly shy because I whenever I'm giving a speech or doing like a performance like acting as a child I'm always like but they're not real people they're just there <laughs> they don't count whereas if you're like Grace go next door and get a pen I'd be like no um, <laughs> however I also as a royal I would be absolutely terrified to mm. give a speech because you most of the time you've got no I mean, I know Victoria's done a lot of preparation, but you don't have any like specific like royal political international politics training. Yeah. Like, there aren't many jobs where you can just be like, oh, can you just give a speech to the German parliament? Yeah, with no training. <laughs> but like what you say has such an impact for so many people. Like I wasn't at least if you're a politician, you very much sign up for it. Like you have to do the political things. But a royal, you're either born into it or married into it. Um, and neither of those things are, you know, there's there's emotion involved in like love and stuff like that. Whereas, so it's not as like cutthroat. And I think there is an infinite amount of pressure on you. And I would be absolutely terrified that I'd say something like, I don't know, I'd try and speak in German and I'd say something wrong and I'd end up insulting the whole of Germany. And yeah. next, you know, we'd be at war and they'd be like, that was Grace's fault. Yeah, exactly. And uh, yeah, you're going to go down in the history books as being the person who restarted a war between Sweden and Germany. Of all places, like, you never think that would happen. Yeah. But it was it was Victoria's fault because she said she offended the whole parliament in one go at the Bundestag. <laughs> yeah. You know, it was it very, it, it weirdly kind of, you know how we've been talking about 18th birthdays a lot recently. Obviously, Victoria is significantly older than 18, but it did still feel like, because she's still heir to the throne, and it was a long time since her 18th birthday speech, this was kind of like a moment for her to be like future Queen Victoria and like statesperson Victoria. Kind of reminded me of the reaction after um, the terror attacks in Sweden. So the king was away at the time for the immediate, he came back, but um, the immediate aftermath was handled by Victoria. And she did an absolutely impeccable job at sort of bringing people together and hitting the right tone and um, responding really quickly. She was excellent. But, you know, her day-to-day engagements are just day-to-day engagements. They're not really trials for her as a queen, if that makes sense. Whereas this felt like this was a statesperson moment. They're always the moments that stand out the most for me. Like at the end of the year, it's those moments where you're like, like, I'm seeing the future. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And this is, I think you know I've you know people talk a lot about like how Mary is like the most like a a natural royal but I've always said that Victoria is a natural monarch and this is one of those moments where like it seemed to come so kind of naturally to her like she held her own and just did it and like it it almost like just went by because it was not it just felt like something she just casually can do give speeches to parliaments yeah um but, you know, when you actually dig into it, she gave an incredibly powerful speech, um, to, you know, a difficult speech to a political powerhouse and did a great job, which is very hard to do. I think you're totally right. Like, it felt like a window into the future of like, what this this is what she is going to be as the queen. And we get glimpses of that every so often, which I, I think is really interesting. And 
I got a sense really from her speech and from the way she delivered it that like she's a person who focuses on action rather than just talking about things. She's optimistic, but without being kind of naive. She is very collaborative and wants to sort of bring people together. Uh, diplomatic, like I feel like she knows the right things to say at the right moments um, for the different audiences that she's talking to. So if I was a Swedish person and I was watching that speech, I would think, oh, you know, we've, we've got a good future ahead of us. <laughs> We're doing good here, guys. We're in good hands with Victoria. If you enjoyed this episode, or in fact any of our episodes, please like, like, and subscribe. I was about to say, don't do that. Or you can. I don't know if you can like and subscribe. Follow us, I think. Follow us and give us five star reviews, please. If you give us a really good one, we'll like, I don't know, read it out on the air. Yeah, we will. We will. Yeah. We, we're very fragile and we like praise. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, five stars reviews only. We are the Strathmore Rose of podcasters. <laughs> very delicate and fragile. Not been seen for 90 years. <laughs> um, but apart from that, we hope you enjoyed this and have a good week. It is goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Goodbye from me.